And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 287 of Panelology. I'm Alex. I am Angela Bones Bullock. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having how, me again. How have you been? Uh, very good. Uh, we, my family, um, just had our early Thanksgiving uh, yesterday. Uh, so, kind of still covering from that today. <laughs> Valid. Lot, lot, lots of food, lots of wine. Uh, lots of fun. Awesome. Uh, most important thing is I got to meet my brother's new dog. Tell me everything about this dog. She is the, like, children's book version of a dog. She she has, like, the uh, the white space that goes down, perfect stripe down the nose. Uh, she cocks her head a bunch. <laughs> Um, she, yeah, she's just the sweetest thing. She, she is, yeah, she's like the, she's the cartoon version of a dog, of just like, the idea of a dog. Beautiful. <laughs> the platonic ideal. Uh, I love it. I haven't even met this puppy, but I love it and will protect it. Let's talk about some comics. Let's. Gonna start with Wonder Woman, number 781. Our main feature, Through a Glass Darkly, Part 1, was written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, with Marcio Takara on art, Tamara Bonvillain on colors, and Pat Prousseau on letters. And this is the beginning of a new arc. Diana is back. We are out of Afterworlds. And uh, there is a certain mop-headed short sociopath giving her grief. I... I do like that Harley. I I'm pretty sure that the reason that he's being used in this in this uh because he appeared in the Afterworlds arc too mm-hmm. briefly. I have a feeling it's mainly because of the Harley Quinn show. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, which like I'm still here for. He's still a little shit. Uh, that you just want him to be punched, just like Napoleon complex out the nines for him. <laughs> I mean, he is basically, he is basically now cast as, oh, I'm an MRA asshole podcaster and book. He's Ben Shapiro. He's Ben Shapiro. (laughs) This is Wonder Woman versus Ben Shapiro. Which we all, yeah, which we all want to see. The the people demanded it. Yeah. Um, (sighs) Wonder Woman would eat him for breakfast. Yes. I do love, yeah, I do love where uh, she wakes up and then, like, she, she comes back to Earth from the afterlife like uh, a less angry Kratos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and so she shows back up and, like, just, yeah, sees him on, like, some Fox News type thing and immediately just like, oh, no, fuck this flies off from her brunch with Etta Candy 
which I do love the I'm not sure when exactly she came back as uh, uh as a black woman who's uh in the army um working with Steve Trevor but I love that uh I love I love that update of her I know that I know that this character this version of the character is who Rucka wrote at the beginning of the rebirth run um, and I know that Etta Candy was not in the Azarello Chang New 52 run. So unless, unless this design showed up between those two runs when the Finches were on the book, it was probably at the top of the, the Rucker run. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so she's having brunch with her bestie, sees, you know, douchebag number one, uh, <laughs> on, on TV, flies off to the studio and then just... Uh, and then just lands in front of his car and is like, listen here. I like, I know what you're doing. I know you're up to some bullshit. You were up to some bullshit when I was dead and I came back for you. Well, and I love that scene so much because he's exactly that kind of spineless, well, I think both sides make fair points, asshole. Mm-hmm. But he is this this character refusing to roll down his windshield like he's got to be as protected as possible yeah from she's she's wonder woman she already stopped a car a windshield is it is entirely like a security blanket it is not doing anything well and then he pulls some purple man shit he does he does Uh, gets her to leave him alone that way but yeah i just love that like even in this moment of him fronting as much as possible he's still just a complete coward yeah yeah it's yeah to get her to get him to get her off his back he uh makes a man almost jump off a building uh (laughs) to distract diana which of course you know yeah she goes and saves him yeah we also get the uh continued team up of diana with one of the most underrated characters in dc comics dead man I've I've been very much enjoying Dead Man in this book, uh, especially now that like he's kind of more of a yeah partner proper in this arc. It seems because he's been helping her out through the Afterworld last arc, uh, and now yeah. she now he's going to help her find Siegfried's mortal resting place so she can return his sword. That's gonna that's gonna be weird. It's. <laughs> Oh, there's no way this goes well for her, right? Like this is the kind, this is the kind of thing that like starts her traveling and then just progressively, shit's gonna get more and more like out of hand, and she's just gonna have to deal with that, and is never gonna get to return the sword, mm-hmm. or at least not anytime soon. Like she's or, gonna be stuck with this sword. Uh, or my guess is zombie Zig is zombie Siegfried shows up. Mm. Uh, I would buy that, yeah. Or his body's gone when she gets there. Yeah, yeah, because there's already there's already something where he's like the signal's weak, so like I gotta go with you. So like something's already up in terms of like his body. This particular Asgardian corpse doesn't have five G or 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 uh, GPS. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't get the COVID shot, so no five G. <laughs> yeah, we also have uh, some sort of bizarro glass-jawed version of Wonder Woman attacks Diana, or attacks Steve Trevor, which, frankly, in my mind, is doing the the Lord's work. <laughs> um, Steve sees it differently. Of course. Is, 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 quick question, because I, I don't think we've ever talked about this. Um, so, Chris Pine's version, did that, do, did that do anything to raise the bar for you for, for Steve Trevor? 
I mean, my answer to that is not an answer to that question. Exactly. Um, I love him in the first Wonder Woman. Yeah. Because to me, Steve Trevor... Steve Trevor, the Justice League animated series, got exactly right. Steve Trevor belongs in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. Steve Trevor, to me, is like the tragic past former love who should not exist in the modern era. So... In my mind, yes, Wonder Woman got Steve Trevor right, and I really liked Chris Pine as Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman 1984 did a bad. Yeah. Yeah, um, they did several. They tried. I have, I make it a point to stay positive on this show, so I've never shared my opinions about Wonder Woman 1984 on Panelology. Um, I did not like bringing Steve Trevor back, though. That will not come as a shock to anybody who has ever heard me talk about him before. Um, he's like a less interesting Scott Summers. So you kind of, so you kind of, well, not necessarily beautiful corpse, but kind of like her version of uh, Gwen Stacy, or or Peggy Carter, right? Like in a pre MCU yeah. world, sort of just Peggy Carter. He's just in the past. Like truly, I think that Justice League animated series scene where after they had fought alongside each other against Vandal Savage, sixty years later, fifty years later. Like, she finds him in the retirement home, and they catch up then, and they're just old friends. Yeah. My fundamental problem with him is he's always going to be the least interesting person in any Wonder Woman story to me. Yeah. And that's fine. I'm not saying he should upstage her, which is actually part of a problem I had with Greg Rucka's run on Wonder Woman. I feel like Greg Rucka did upstage Diana with Steve Trevor for part of that run. I just, I just don't think he's very interesting. I don't think he adds much. Yeah, Not in the present day. Yeah, yeah, he's probably a hard character to write present, if, if not impossible. Yeah. Uh, but we also get a backup. Yes. Road to the Trial of the Amazons, which is our first big Wonder Woman event in a very long time. What Lies Beneath, Part 1, written by Vita Ayala, whom I love, art by Skylar Patridge, whom I love, colors by Romulo Fierder Jr., whom I love, and letters by Pat Brousseau, who is, like, the iconic Wonder Woman letterer for me at this point. Like, it's a perfect creative team, and I loved this backup so much. It's it's a wild ride of, like, what, eight pages? Yeah. We, we're we in Bana Migdal, the uh, more militant Amazon offshoot. And it is, it actually kind of mirrors something that we saw in uh, Nubia and the Amazons, uh, which we haven't talked about on the show yet. I'll get into that next week. But like, part of the first issue of that is these new Amazons coming out through the Well of Souls and adding to the Themyscaran ranks. This is Ban Amygdal, adding some new Amazons to their ranks, mm-hmm. or at least one. Um, and it's this kind of test of, you have to fight to the death to earn your place, and the one who rejects the gun, who rejects killing someone else who is fighting for freedom, mm. says she would fight to protect herself but will not take a life to do it. Like, she's the one who gets in. Yeah. Um, I, I liked that twist. I, I, I did, was, too. I, I, kind of, I kind of was expecting, like, this offshoot to be kind of like the Spartan, I guess, to the Themyscirin, uh, it, um... Uh, Athenians. Uh, yeah. Um. But they. Uh. Yeah. But no. It was. Yeah. The twist. Yeah. Well, the like, test by not fighting. And that really is like 
you would believe, given especially like Artemis is the best known Amazon from Banamigdal, like you would believe, okay, yeah, shoot out at the old cafe in Banamigdal to join the team. Um, I love that they don't go there. I don't know, I don't know exactly how this feeds in to Trial of the Amazons, but this and Nubia and uh, Wonder Girl all have kind of this same we're expanding the world sort of energy that all feel like they will be building to it collectively. Yeah. And I'm here for it. Yeah, it's, yeah, because that one is you have the trial and then, like, right into the fire where a chimera is attacking, uh, is attacking them. And that's the last big uh, splash page for the title at the end of the story. Yeah. And this... I assume, since this is a part one, we're going to see more of what's going on here as the series continues. Yeah, I, I guess I kind of assume that the um, the young Diana backup kind of wrapped, at least for it now. It did, and yeah. Like, this is, yeah, and so like this is kind of the, the replacement, like they're keeping, keeping a backup in the back of Wonder Woman. Yeah. I am going to talk briefly about Justice League Last Ride, number five through seven. This was originally announced as a digital first series, and like a lot of a lot of the books middle of twenty twenty one that d c announced as digital first got pushed to print and digital same day uh but it's ship Starsky telling kind of an elseworld's justice League story in a very like pretty much current continuity continuity, but this definitely isn't happening in current continuity uh sort of place. The setup for the series has been that the Justice League has to protect Lobo from basically everyone in the universe wanting to kill him long enough for the United Planets to set him up for trial and to try him for his crime. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know why, but that reminded me of the first uh, episode of uh, Deadwood where you see uh, Sheriff Bullock when he's Marshall Bullock still, and, um, mm -hmm. and he, uh, yeah, like, this crowd is coming to, like, lynch the guy. He's already been arrested, but they want to hang it, but, like, they, you know, they want mob justice, so. <laughs> so, uh, so what, uh, so what Bullock does is, he's like, all right, the state is going to execute this man, and so just puts a, puts a peach box up, Hang, throws a rope over a, a beam and then just kicks the peach box out from under him. It's like, all right, like it's, the state has done it, you assholes. Anyway, Dead, Dead um, great show. That's first ep first episode. To, not comics, but still good. Yeah. Uh, weirdly enough, I feel like Wonder Woman from this book would probably be right there and support that plan. <laughs> Um, what we get in these last couple of issues, uh, number six, I think, gives us who is pulling the strings on, uh, having, let's see, having given Mongol some false intel that there are lots of resources left on the, oh, by the way, Apocalypse is, like, a dead hole of a planet now, and Darkseid is supposedly dead, and, uh, in fighting them off, Martian Manhunter also died. Um, fire, yeah, yeah. We learn who who was pulling the strings. Who sent Mongol after these non-existent resources? Who sent the Hank Henshaw Brainiac hybrid? Who shows up to attack 
Um, and it's a lot of fun. It it actually has a lot of the energy of sort of the Justice League animated series. Uh, not necessarily the art style, mm-hmm. but it very much feels like, like the kind of almost Elseworlds story they would sort of lean into sometimes, like where you see the episode that establishes on Earth 3, and then we see the, the crime lords yeah. come to Earth. It has kind of that vibe. It ends with sort of a... Actually, a lot of potential to keep going if they wanted to have Zdarsky follow up with this, uh, with like a Justice League Universal idea. That's well, that, that's one thing that I do love about uh, DC, at least currently, is really leaning into allowing Elseworlds tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Tom Taylor's the king of that currently. Um, and yeah, it just does... Just has great fun stories. Like they, you know, they let the sandbox be infinite uh, because the the biggest the biggest issue with uh, ongoing stories is your chain is your best writer is chained to your worst writer and to your worst stories. But these elsewhere tales like uh, allow like okay you you know generally the characters here's a here's a new situation for them. Yeah, yeah, and I think when you've got a writer who, like Chip has said before, in fact recently he, he made the news for saying like he has no desire to write the ongoing main Batman book or Spider-Man or like these big top tier characters in ongoing regular continuity because he knows people will always be furious with him. Like yes, he's writing a Batman prequel series about his time traveling as Bruce Wayne training, but he's not writing the flagship Batman book. He doesn't want to write the flagship Spider-Man book because he doesn't want the entirety of the internet screaming at him all the time. And, like, it makes me a little sad for him that, like, that's the reason why. But at the same time, he's gotten to write a great Spider-Man series. He's getting to write Batman. He gets to have fun with these other sandboxes. And sometimes I wonder if part of it isn't. For some writers, I've got to imagine the sandbox where they can make the rules of the world is more satisfying than being chained to continuity. Yeah. I'm sure for other writers it's the other way around, but mm-hmm. it's got to cut both ways. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very much a double-edged sword, it, and it all depends on the writer who's wielding it. Um, you know, like, uh, uh, of course you have, um, oh, I am blanking right now, um, All-Star Superman... The recent Green Lantern run. Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. Uh, Grant Morrison, I think, is trying to have it both ways because they have said uh, everything is in continuity and nothing is in continuity. <laughs> Which is is kind of like the status quo for DC now. That's very much where death metal left everything. Yeah. Um, I also think on their part that's the only way to approach it because anything they do Eventually, someone's gonna say, "No, this was canon. We just don't worry about why it, just, it was." Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, uh, I, it's they've teased. Well, we'll get to, to Spider-Man eventually, but I, uh, in the the very last page for the ads for the upcoming for the upcoming uh, issues, it's implying that uh, the they're calling back to Doc Ock and <laughs> Doc Ock and Aunt May having at one point been briefly dating. Yes. Uh, well, you know what? Let's not just tease it. Let's go on All right, let's to go. the Amazing let's... Spider-Man number 78. Oh, let's... before we do that, uh, 
Justice League Last Right was art by Miguel Mendonca, colors by Enrica Angelini, and letters by Anworld Design. Now, Spider-Man number 78. Written by Kelly Thompson, with art by Sarah Pacelli, with Jim Toe. Colors by Nolan Woodward, with, sorry, Nolan Woodard, with Rochelle Rosenberg. And letters by Joe Caramagna. Yeah, so, uh, this one was a interesting one, because it's part three, at this point, of the Beyond storyline. Is it line. three or four? Hey, maybe, I think it's part I think it's no, four. No, it's part, part, it's part four. Because it's our second Kelly Thompson chapter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess she did the she did the previous issue too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Peter is still sick in bed. Black, my one of my personal favorite parts was when uh, Black Cat shows up. Yes, and, and uh, Mary Jane comes in. And she's and Black Cat's just like, uh, I'll leave now. And he, she's like, No, like you're you know moral support that's for peter that's fine like stay but uh because at this point he's still comatose yeah like as mary jane walks in his thing his finger is like just wiggled a little for felicia yeah and i think i think mary jane even has the line like i will squeeze as many of peter's romantic interest in here as i have to if that's what makes him better yeah i will go through your little red book feet like don't That's gonna get awkward. Uh, personally, I love the role reversal also that has been happening with Aunt May. Uh, just being the, the being the one storming around like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that poor doctor, like absolutely <laughs> what he deserves. But that poor doctor. You don't. You do not mess with Aunt May's baby boy. You just you no. Don't, you don't do it. She she has her ex boyfriend, Doctor Octopus, on speed dial still. Apparently, <laughs> I, I do. I do like that idea though of just like, what, it, like that they have one of those relationships that didn't quite work, but there's still a chemistry there between them. Uh, I mean, especially if you have like a. A little bit more of the Alfred Molina version of Doc Ock. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I can, I totally see that happening. Like, I feel like that was a very Dan Slot move throughout his run. The, I would never dare hurt that sweet old lady yeah. kind of thing out of Doc Ock whenever Peter's like, why didn't you ever attack me at home? Yeah. Because I didn't want to do that to your aunt. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Did you, uh, listen, Aunt May is nice. The rest of New York sucks. But <laughs> I also I, I also like that we have the daughters of the dragon in here. I like that we're kind of building out a supporting cast that's not just spider themed characters. As much as I uh, love yeah. a lot of those characters, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's gotten a little bit ridiculous recently. I feel like Kinda sometimes like, it's, it's 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 gotten to Batman levels, but I don't think that vibe quite works for Peter. And it's when it's when like. The fact that getting too many spider people in one room always leads it back to fate. Mm. And like the the great web of fate and all that jazz. Yeah. That's its full official name, I'm sure. Like, I dig Madam Web as a concept, but letting every story build to that eventually becomes boring. Fraught. Yeah. Also that. But this issue gives me something that makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. I'm always I, personally. I'm always happy when Missy Knight shows up. Well, yes, yes, but 
she and Colleen are working with someone else. Who are they working with? They uh, they are working with the first female Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau. And it was not until this moment when it finally clicked in my head. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I do know where I know the Beyond Corporation from. Where's that? Now, I, I will grant uh, the writer responsible for this book is not someone who we've been talking about lately because... He made some poor choices and uh, has not answered for those yet. But Next Wave Agents of Hate is a book that I adore and think is hysterically funny. And the Beyond Corporation figured into it. Monica Rambeau was on the Next Wave team. And that is why she's in this book, because she's still investigating Beyond. And I don't know where this will go. Yeah. But their whole thing was like weird fringe science and experiments gone bad and like trying to weaponize Fin Fang Foom. Well, that was well, and then that was another thing we saw in this issue because um, uh, Mobius is going nuts again mm-hmm. and uh, bites Ben. Uh, and of course, you know, then he has to be rushed back and, and get medical attention. Uh, and then the the head of the team is just like, so what would happen if we just <laughs> didn't do anything? Would it activate some latent vampire powers? Could we have a bat spider? Yeah, it's, yeah. Can we have a can we have a bat spider? Can we like it's like what what are the possibilities here? And and the doctor's just like I don't know. He's dying. <laughs> like to not treat him would be unethical. Unethical, right? Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, all right. Give him the shot then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is not like the first time we've seen them approaching weird science in this book. Too maybe it was either a backup in the first issue of this run or the last issue of Nick Spencer's. Mm-hmm. But there was a brief page in which it must have been the first of this run. A brief, like, three or four page short where we saw Ben's handler approach Dr. Shelley at Ravencroft to recruit her to come work for Beyond. I think it was Dr. Shelley was her name. Um, Yeah. Who was was already researching, like, clones and Ben Riley and that kind of thing. Yeah, I also think that, like, he's trying to keep Peter secret because... In a way, he is Peter, so like you know, he's gonna be, he's gonna be nice about that. But yeah, they, I mean, they, with all the medical rigmarole they put him through, they gotta know he's a clone. They gotta know who he's, a, who he is a clone of. Like, yeah. Uh. So. Although yeah, technically, technically, Mephisto's bullshit is still in play. Technically. Well, yeah, but like I would, I would still argue that like just the like outside of it like this is a rediscovery i guess you can say like whatever like they they know peter is spider-man they've Uh, gotta yeah um i also wonder if like that's maybe why he's still sick because like when it when it was like oh like radiation poisoning and it's like have we i can't remember if we had that plum point before if because like i always thought that he was like essentially now immune to radiation or these two for the most part I feel like it's one of those ideas that gets played with from time to time, but maybe there's no definitive answer. Yeah. And it feels like the thing, certainly through the 70s and 80s, that would have been, well, as my powers mutate and evolve, it changes. Because I feel like that does sound familiar. Also, though, 
there's the whole Spider-Man rain thing, which I know is outside of continuity, but in which, like, proximity to him and the fact that he is radioactive gives Mary Jane cancer. Yeah. Uh, I also, well, and then also the, was it like the, the, was it implied the sickness he had in the other was latent radiation poisoning? That certainly sounds plausible. I haven't actually read the other, though, so it's, it's I do not. I, I've read it. I've it's been a while since I've read it, but like he he gets sick in that, and I think it's implied that it's from his powers. So that would have yeah. So like been from radiation. Yeah. Um, but then weirdness happens that he goes into a cocoon and pops out fine. <laughs> <laughs> with with biological spinners, and a then, thing that I will never approve of in any medium. Uh, and then, uh, and then stingers, which they don't really do anything with after that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I am, I, I feel like they're doing an okay job. Well, especially with being weekly, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing an okay job with, with juggling everything. Uh, cause there's a lot of plot points going on there. Peter's, yeah. Peter is sick. Uh, Aunt May just went off to do her own thing. Yeah, Ben Riley. Then you have the Daughters of the Dragon, like you said. Um, so there's a there's a lot of balls in the air uh, being juggled currently in this book, which I again being weekly, I'm all here for. That is the original kind of version I read Spider Man as when I first was picking it up at my local comic shop was was Brand New Day when they went to first went to three times a month. Yeah, I'm definitely digging it. I I have no complaints. If I had if I had any, I would do myself the favor of switching to reading it in trades. But I have none, and I can't justify not reading it every week. Yeah, I'm an easy mark. Uh, I also caught up on the Joker this week. Uh, I read the last three issues of it through number nine, which just came out. The main feature there, written by James Tynan IV, with art by Guillaume March on number seven and eight, and Stefano Raffaella on nine. Colors by Arif Prianto on 7 and 8, and Romulo Fayardo on 9, and letters by Tom Napolitano. Uh, this is the book that I never want to like, and then I pick it up again, and I'm always like, how is it this good? Why is it better than I remember? It has, no no book called The Joker has any right to actually be this good. When, when I first heard about it coming out, I rolled my eyes, and I was like, like, really? Like, it's, like, I, it, like, I love the Joker, but, like, I feel like we're, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit Joker fatigue. Uh, oh, 100%. But then I found out James Tannen was writing it, and I was like, ah, fuck, I gotta pick this up and trade, don't I? <laughs> uh, and at the end of the day, it's called The Joker, uh-huh. and one of these issues even has the line, my story is the Joker's story. It's really a Jim Gordon book. Hmm. It's from his perspective. It's about his history with the Joker. It's about his decision whether or not, once he finally tracks him down, to kill the Joker. And, like, the way that that feels just like an insane thing to feel like he has control over anyway. Hmm. Um, I've said it before, I know, but the Joker is about the Joker in the way that Jaws is about the shark. Yeah. Um... But these three issues do something really interesting with the entire history of Gotham that I never expected this book to do, and that honestly shouldn't work as well as it does. But it 
you know, you know the debate. Like the the the, I would say overplayed and uninteresting at this point. Debate: Did Gotham have so many criminals that it needed Batman, or did Batman's presence encourage criminality? Yeah. And this book chooses a third answer: No. <laughs> Neither of those things. If you're not caught up, some potential spoilers here, but this is more like shifting into the next gear than actually what it's about. There is a shadowy underground network of ultra-rich criminals that basically have just said the best advertisement for our services was for us to pick a city and just pull strings and turn shit loose in that city. Mm. We made Bane... We sold the Joker the missile that factored into uh, Death in the Family. We have done all these things just to make money. And Gotham's our testing ground. It's not one or the other. It's that we picked it because we could. Yeah. And it sounds cheesy without the way the book sets it up. But the book plays it as this, like, really cool international mystery that has infiltrated the politics of Santa Prisca and parts of the U.S. government and Interpol. And just, like, no one can totally be trusted. And that's why shit's always bad in Gotham. Yeah. I wonder how much it would tie into the Court of Owls as well. Like, I know they're not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily a criminal organization, but... Well, how much it ties into the Court of Owls is a great question, and also one that uh, one that Barbara Gordon is working on, because yes, the Court of Owls are also in this book and part of the equation. Yeah. It's, it is insane that they're, like, I'm glad they're sticking around, they're a great idea, um, but it's it feels so rare nowadays for a creation to a modern creation in comics to expand outside of its creator. Like what, you know, like they'll create a new villain once they leave the bulk, like they're never used again. Well, and that's the thing I'm really curious to see because Tynan is leaving the book after this month. And I think part of the reason his run on Batman has been so, I mean, he's staying on the Joker a little longer, but he's leaving Batman. And I think part of the reason his run has been so successful is because he actually has a real talent for creating new characters who fit in the world but work differently and fill new roles. Or, in the case of, like, Punchline, it's a very different character than Harley Quinn, but serves as the sort of second-in-command to Joker so that Harley can go be someone else and something else now. Yeah. But characters like Punchline, like Miracle Molly, like... The Gardener, like uh, Ghostmaker and Clown Hunter and all of these new characters who he's introduced. Clown Hunter just showed up in an issue of, like, the Outsiders story, I think it was, in an issue of uh, Gotham Urban Legends. Like, working with Tim Drake, and it's like, that works! And it shouldn't necessarily work that easily, but it does. I want to see how long these characters stick around because I think they're really great. It's the freshest mm. it's the freshest Gotham has felt in terms of the difference between really great versions of existing ideas that I think was true of Snyder's run. Yeah. And really cool new ideas that make Gotham feel like a different place. 
Yeah, like I, yeah, I, I agree. I really hope that um, punchline. I think I think it'd be expanded on, but Clown Hunter and Ghostmaker, especially Ghostmaker, I really like as finally an equal for Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, compared to like the Justice League, he's kind of uh, kind of coworkers almost because there, there's, I th- I feel like a slight distrust that he has of at least the idea of the Justice League, not even necessarily the individual members, but just, like, all of these powerful people gathering around, like, just sets off his, his bat radar. Yeah. Um, and then, But this is the closest he has to a childhood friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is That doesn't want to kill him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we see you, Tommy Elliot. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, like, I, I do really, especially after Alfred's passing, especially after a- Alfred dying, um, him having this, uh, yeah, him having this equal, because then it, it kind of makes him more in the father role, because mm-hmm. you know he, and then yeah, Ghost Hunter's the insane uncle, just like, what is <laughs> what is he doing? Is a kid don't don't follow him, kids, but like you know he's he's trying. <laughs> it's funny you mention uh, Alfred's death too, because Julia Pennyworth shows up in these issues of the Joker. We learned that, like, she's been secretly investigating Santa Prisca because of Bane's role in Alfred's death. Yeah. We also have the the punchline backup, which is written by Sam Johns and James Tynan IV, arts by Sweeney Boo and number seven, and Rosie Campa in eight and nine. Colors are by Sweeney Boo in seven, and Mar- Marissa Louise in eight and nine. Letters are by Ariana Marr. This is still, uh, Underrated Bat family member Harper Rowe, a.k.a. Bluebird, is undercover in prison trying to find a witness to testify against Punchline before Punchline, who is in the same prison, can kill said witness. Yeah. Uh, It is, it's exactly what it sounds like, but it's just so well done and it's so fun. And I, I love Bluebird. I think Bluebird is a, one of the, the, great additions that scott snyder brought to the table that no one's really picked up very much yeah um so anytime we get more and like she's teamed up with leslie Tompkins in this book like it's the two of them scheming on their own and i'm like yeah i need this i need more of just like the older lady doctor and the snarky sort of sidekick who refuses to totally join the family Doing things their way on the side. Give me more of this, please. Yeah. Uh, back to Marvel. Ping ponging. There you go. Venom number one. So, I have yet to read the previous run of Venom. I heard very good things, uh, but I I've yet to pick it up. Or by pick it up, I mean read it on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah. But, so new, you know. New creative team, new number one. It's like, all right, let me start it. Holy shit, what an update. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the wild thing. Mm -hmm. Everything that is new for this book happened in the last issue of that run. That's insane. Like, all of the new pieces that are the crux of this, the Eddie Brock can be anywhere in space controlling any symbiote except his original partner symbiote. Yeah. And Dylan has the original Venom symbiote. Those two things get introduced in that last issue. And they're super cool there, but I am so glad that this run picks up and carries on with those. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, well, like, especially, like, it's gonna be very much, 
uh, I think going to be a family drama. Mm-hmm. Because you have Benham, yeah, doing his, yeah, uh, dark protector shtick of like, hey, why do, why do we kill those dudes? Let's do it. <laughs> um, but then also, like, it's, it's cool to see Eddie having grown up. Like my like my first introduction to Eddie Brock was the uh the Fox Spider Man animated show. Same. Yeah. Same. And where he's just a he's just a, a shithead there, just like this <laughs> this jock. It is like oh, is like it? Yeah. Like he of course yeah commits journalism fraud, gets rightfully called out for it, and is like, man, fuck you, like you ruined my life, and it's like nah. You like you lied, <laughs> and so you got fired, rightfully so, my man. Uh, and yeah, the whole but the whole thing of like he's yeah like king of the symbiotes now, which apparently comes with the perk of being able to control all of them at once, essentially. Um, yep. But also, like that is a he's having a hard time keeping him self-grounded because all that has to do is he just has to think and then he's in another sim- he's in a symbiote uh and as such i do like the fact that he's just like laying in a hotel bed all day so his actual body just has this little pot belly that they mm-hmm. <laughs> that they drew on him just r- real big unkempt beard uh because he like just spends a week at a time technically just laying in bed um but like he's doing it to better the universe, to restore the reputation of the symbiotes uh, after Noel. Uh, and also to make his son proud. Like, he talks about, like, I mean, I really, like, you know, I really hope Dylan is proud of me. Like, I'm trying to do good and everything. But at the same time, he is being a shitty dad because he, like, accidentally spends, like, three weeks in space. <laughs> uh, he's never there when Dylan need him, needs him. Dylan keeps getting into fights at school. Yeah, like it's it's not great times for Dylan. Yeah, uh, but also I feel like for slightly different reasons, he's he he is who his father used to be. Yeah, to a certain extent. Um, but of course you have you know Eddie come kind of coming out of that. Not he's still Eddie. I feel like at his core. <laughs> yeah, like, he's a fuck-up with the powers of a god who wants to do good. Yeah. Like, he's... We see him, like, rescue this ship from basically pirates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has his four symbiotes he's piloting, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And he just <laughs> hops between them across the ship whenever he needs to, to move. Um, but, like, that goes badly. Because of some nemesis who shows up to fight him, yeah. everyone on board that ship ends up dead. And he's like, oh, no, I want people to see symbiotes and think hope. We got to get out of here before anyone finds this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, the distress beacon is still going, so uh, we need to peace out. <laughs> um, I, I do. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if this reflects the, uh, the writer's feelings about uh Ringo but Ringo is the one that gets possessed and kills the <laughs> and kills the, the uh kills the crew and it's like 
don't, don't know if that's a don't know if that's an intentional jab or not at Ringo. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe you almost choose Ringo because he's he's the one who you can read the least into doing that potentially. Yeah, well, yeah, because Ringo yeah. or George, but George is dead, so yeah. Jo- I mean, well, George George was very zen while he was alive. Like true. Compared at least compared to like, uh. Especially compared to John. Like, yeah. Uh, but anyway. Well, I also think it's interesting. My understanding is Al Ewing is specifically writing the Eddie parts, mm-hmm. and Rom V is specifically writing the Dylan parts. All right. Thanks. Which I think you can kind of feel. Like, the tone of each of their character arcs is a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all fits together well. We learn one other thing that we did not know prior to this issue that Eddie can do. Now, yeah. as a god, at the end of this, he can apparently send his consciousness through time. Yeah, yeah. Not only not only anywhere where a symbiote is, but any when is the <laughs> is the phrasing. In this new Venom series, Al Ewing and Ram V posit the question: What if Venom was the Doctor? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> Vid- uh, Venom teams up with um, Quantum Leap. <laughs> Venom Leap. <laughs> it's uh, uh, there's our episode title. There you go. Uh, which and also the thing is, so one inter- uh one hint, I guess, upcoming. Um, Eddie probably uh, Eddie's probably gonna become friends with Kang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's gonna buddy up with Kang, which will be interesting. Uh, but then he, there's is that horned guy at the very end that has his Eddie's bones. He's new, right? I think so. I did not immediately recognize him. Uh, I'm just pulling that issue back up here quickly. Yeah, I did not immediately recognize him. Although the horns, the horns make me think maybe of actually you know his last line is welcome to my garden and the horns and the symbol on his chest make me think of did you ever read hickman's avengers run i do not believe so hickman introduced the idea of okay alex quickly summarize a jonathan hickman idea from a 150 issue run um these sort of universal universal stewards of life and creation called the gardeners whose job was to like go terraform planets and bring life to them Uh literally seeding life across the universe he looks a lot like a gardener design and he has that line about welcome to my garden he may be a new character but kind of built out of that mythos which would be a very al ewing piece to pick up yeah Okay. Because um, I don't think we've seen the Gardeners much at all since Hickman's run, and that wrapped up a few years ago now, so. Alright, yeah. That feels like long enough for someone else to come in and pick them up and use them somewhere else. Yeah. Well, then especially with, like, the, I guess, but the potential of uh, symbiotes in terms of just, like, the rewriting of what exactly they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, another thing Al Ewing recently did was turn Ego the Living Planet into a uh, body or a host for um, 
Dormammu to possess for Dormammu to attack all of space. So, like, who knows with Al Ewing? Who knows? Gotta, gotta love that. Oh, is that how, is that how, uh, Doctor Strange died? Nope. Had absolutely nothing to do with that, believe it or not. (laughs) Doctor Strange actually did not get that phone call. Doctor Doom got that phone call. Oh, God. In case you've ever wondered what would happen if Rocket Raccoon and Doctor Doom teamed up to fight a possessed living planet, Al Ewing has taught us this. (laughs) He has has answered that question that nobody could ask. Uh, Al Ewing and Rom V are two of my favorite writers period so like this is a dream book for me pencils are brian hitch inks are andrew curry colors alex sinclair letters clayton cowles i have no clue where it's going next but i am here for the ride yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of great seeds uh in in this issue seeds garden i see what you did there a lot of digital Uh, but i'll take it Black Manta, another book I caught up on. Read both two and three. Written by Chuck Brown. Art is by Valentin Delandro in two. And Matthew Dow Smith in three. Colors by Marissa Louise. And letters by Clayton Cowles. I feel like this is probably a book that is flying under a lot of people's radar. It's a miniseries. It's about Black Manta, who's not exactly what you'd call the most A-list villain. It's doing some really cool stuff with myth and mythology and the history of Atlantis, and yeah. I don't I don't know exactly where it's all going. Number one left Brian and me with a lot of questions. We were like, this is excellent. This is awesome. I do not know what happens next. There is no way to predict this. Yeah. Here are some things that have happened since then. A new Manta-themed villain, Devil Ray, has shown up, threatened the entire world, claimed control of all the waterways, uh, has attacked Atlantis, and plans to attack Black Manta. He is not Black Manta, but everyone assumes that he is, which is hilarious to me. Um, We learn that the, like, health problems and headaches and passing out that Black Manta and other random people have been dealing with is because someone has unearthed a load of Orichalcum, which was this, uh, it exists in, like, real-world mythology, but this mythological rock from Atlantis uh, that was imbued with dark magics and is causing anyone with latent Atlantean lineage to, like, have their DNA overwritten as Atlantean. So apparently Black Manta might be Atlantean, which he is not happy about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also... And... It, well, does, does that have to do also with the uh, Justice League Dark battling, uh, battling uh, Merlin in Atlantis? I feel like it must, but I don't see any direct connections. It has more direct connection to what's going on in Wonder Woman right now. Because we see this, like, seafoam-haired, like, literally bubbly-haired, designed like a goddess character wake up entombed in Themyscira. And she gets out, and, like, Nubia offers help and offers aid. And she's like, nah, my demon friend and I are gonna go figure out what's up. Um, So now she's met up with Black Manta, who along with his right-hand hench person, has tracked down, again, a favorite villain, the Gentleman Ghost, (laughs) to use the Gentleman Ghost's powers 
and the Orichalcum to send Black Manta back in time thousands of years to right before Atlantis sank to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Fair enough. It is wild. It is wild. Again, one of those things that sounds absolutely insane, like a fever dream to describe out loud, but works so well. Yeah. Chuck Brown, uh, I mean, has been killing it as part of the team on uh, Bitterroot, and this is absolutely incredible, too. I love it. I am so glad I picked this up. I think at very least this is worth a read in trade when it gets collected. It's just such a... And there's like so much... So much of the book is about like Black Manta's regret for his relationship with Jackson and things that maybe he doesn't wish he had done differently, but that he recognizes he did poorly and knows that he should have done better, even if he wouldn't have made different decisions. Yeah. Like it's bittersweet at times. Well, I wonder how much, because there was a, as the, as the uh, Aqualad uh, miniseries wrapped up, the the Becoming, what was it? Wasn't that Aquaman the Becoming, which is about Jackson taking over as Aquaman. And no, it's still, I think issue three of it comes out this coming week, or this week as, yeah, this week. Okay. Wednesday, the 17th. All right. My, um, my guess is that's got to be building to a new. These two books have got to be laying the ground for the new, the next ongoing Aquaman. I think absolutely. I mean, that book has basically said explicitly Aquaman has Arthur has no intention of picking up the mantle again, and it will be Jackson. Hmm. And we saw in Future State it was Jackson with with Andy as his sidekick trainee alongside him um and i'm digging that book too that's brandon thomas who i don't think has ever written a bad comic all right let's see next deadpool black white and blood number four uh i i've been i've been really enjoying this series just the uh just the fun that each writer seems to be having with Deadpool. Because uh, we were talking a little bit more about uh, before about uh, continuity, like mm-hmm. out of continuity stuff, like they got like they were able to stretch their wings a lot more. So their writers are definitely doing that here. Uh, I mean, the first story, I believe, <laughs> is, is uh, he shows up and he's like, yeah, it's like, don't worry, there's a lot of red. And by red, I mean blood upcoming. Like, uh, it's like, yeah, I'm wearing my uh, my cool black and white X Force costume for this specific issue, and <laughs> uh, I really like that one. And then also, like, yeah. it makes me want to pick up a uh, Deadpool Samurai, which that team that uh that team did uh one of the stories for this one too. Uh, which I is... thought you were going to say it made you want to pick up some Kool-Aid, which it very much did for me. <laughs> but yes, Deadpool Samurai, you are moving on. I, I recognize that now. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, so the, 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 the bad shit insanity of, yeah, it's the Kool-Aid man, but he's a T-Rex. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, and like this, the, uh, this AIM scientist, his one goal to become a scientist was to create his childhood best friend, which was this fake Kool-Aid uh, mascot. A glass dinosaur full of red Kool-Aid. Yes. 
Uh, and he does. And they pay... AIM pays Deadpool $100 million <laughs> to kill him. Because uh, he wants to quench everybody's thirst, which the only way to do that is to kill them. Yeah, yeah. It's, but I was... It, it, well, I, then I also love where it's like uh, the final like two pages where he's like, the the creature uh, starts talking and Deadpool's like, wait, you could talk? And he was like, yes, of course I could talk. Like, I may be I may be a monster, as you say, but I'm a monster made of love. And then I love Deadpool's line where he's like, well, I wish you had started talking about ten seconds earlier. Because he had thrown just a bunch of grenades into his, uh, into his Kool-Aid belly. And so then he just explodes. Uh. And that was written by Christopher Yost with art by Martin Cocciolo. Colors by Mattia Iacono, and letters by Joe Sabino. Uh, but yeah, that that one was a lot of fun. Um, let me put my my cousin and brother are texting. Um, are there any dog pictures? No, I do not believe so. We were talking about a, okay. a potential tattoo. Um, anyway, uh, but the next uh, so the next story is the samurai story, right? Is the by that team? Yes. And I, I will be honest, up until the very last page, I spent most of this story wondering, is this real? I, uh, I, I think I remember hearing about it. It's like, it's it's uh, published by some version of Shonen Jump. like that. Well, and the last page is basically an ad for the, the two volumes that are out. So I'm assuming it is real. Mm-hmm. This is written by Sanshiro Kasama with art by Hikaru Yusegi. Uesugi, rather. Uh, and letters by Joe Sabino. Uh, I I also do love that they. What I do love is that they clearly do. They love uh, American comics as well, because several mm-hmm. of the jo- several of the jokes are centered around uh, that we. Uh, no matter the emotion, ours uh, our speech bubbles usually stay the same shape. Mm-hmm. But it's they they use that very much to express uh, different shapes used to express emotion in manga. And so they have a they have a running gag about that, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, it's like yeah, it's like it's like oh, you're not in America Comics anymore, buddy. Like this is your speech bubble <laughs> needs to change. That's <laughs> that's gotta be one of my favorite Deadpool jokes. Like yeah, well, it's a really smart way to use the like Deadpool can be meta gag because then you can talk about like yes no these are these are the differences in formats and i also know about these come at me yeah 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 he's uh then so that was a lot of fun and yeah it kind of makes me want to pick it up because i I remember hearing about it um uh i remember hearing about it coming up and yeah it was the it's like made by published by like shonen jump i think i guess online at first uh because th- there was a j- uh, another joke in this one where it's like, yeah, like, can't believe you haven't heard of us. Like, we were the most read comic in 2020. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you have a guy in the background say, well, actually, because it, uh, it was free online, we can't actually say that. And then Dipple just shoots him in the face. <laughs> I am looking now at the uh, horrible online bookseller listing for it. It comes out. On February 8th, I'm assuming in English it comes out on February 8th, oh, specifically. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, but I am looking at their listing for the paperback, which is 10 bucks. Yeah, Tonka Bonds usually are about 10 bucks. Yeah. I know nothing about manga. I know less about manga than I do about anime, which is almost nothing. 
there's uh you might enjoy this series um just real quick pitch it's called bakuman where it's about manga creators uh that's cool that's the premise of it and so it goes into really interesting details about the differences in the actual business like the way they publish uh so like for one thing because instead of 23 pages a month they do about 18 a week um yeah so as such all of the stuff you read is from studios they hire the main writer slash artist who's maybe two people usually one he they then use their salary from shonen jump let's say to then hire assistants so like they'll write and they'll do the big blocking of the page and like do the character drawing but like the lettering the inking the backgrounds the effects are all his are all their assistants doing that so it's Mm. this uh this is a similarly line way of making comics where like they all like are in a in a small studio together and almost like the old marvel bullpen back in the day yeah in terms of the 30s yeah exactly the only manga i have read uh my sister gifted me a few volumes of my hero academia on comiXology so i've read a little bit of it it's fun it's I dig it. It's just like a whole that in anime. The the answer is mostly like I just have never taken the time to really dig in. I am one of those people who like I want to dig in and like make a plan for how to read or yeah, consume yeah, yeah. a thing and like figure out what to read when and like what's you know. I just haven't done that for those things yet. I am watching Cowboy Bebop right now ahead of the Netflix yeah. live action just because a bunch of people have been like, no, Alex, you would really dig it. I am digging it so yeah. far. I I'm about fourteen episodes in. Um, I need to finish it myself, and I am looking forward to the to the live action. Uh, uh, I forget the actress name, but the actor that's playing the live action Spike, like the fact that they're using his actual hair, is amazing to me. Instead of like, that's a uh, oh yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about, and I'm blanking on his name too. To IMDb, yes. you gotta love the internet. It it totally killed barroom conversations. Cause like you know, because you know how like it used to be like a thirty minute argument about like who was in what movie playing who, and it's now you just go to IMDb. Might have ruined barroom conversations, but it makes getting answers during a podcast much smoother. It it does. It very much does. Uh, John Cho. That's right. Yes. All I know is the first the first pictures screen screenshots that came out from it as promo images. I did not immediately recognize it as Cowboy Bebop. I did not know that that's what it was. I just saw the picture absent any anything. Yeah. And I immediately thought that uh, Faye was, in fact, someone at Disney had put together some new show. And that, that character, based on that costume, was a gender-bent Gaston. And I was like, I don't know whose idea that was, but that person deserves a raise. Uh, y- uh, you know what? No, that I now want to see that. I want to. I want to. <laughs> I mean, the color, the coloration on the costume was exactly right. It was that picture on the sofa where she's like laying back and her feet are kicked up. So you just saw the coloration yep. and the boots that were very Gaston. I'm like, okay, okay. Uncomfortable feelings about Gaston. He's a meathead. No, thank you. <laughs> the last Deadpool story, Operation Payback, written and drawn, written and arted, I almost said. Written and drawn by Michael Allred, colored by Laura Allred, with letters by Joe Sabino. Anytime you give me Michael Allred art, I'm happy. Uh, Also, I want to say, arted does 
technically fit uh, the English rules of of uh, verb conjugation. So yeah, well, you know, I am nothing if not uh, conventional. There you go. <laughs> yeah, linguistic prescriptivism is violence. This has been my TED talk. We also get a little dupe cameo that always makes me happy. I don't have oh, a whole yeah, lot yeah. to say about this last one other than it was fun and it's an art team I love. Yeah, and... it's well because it's also not very. Uh, it's not a very dialogue heavy. There no. actually isn't, so it's like a very fast read. Uh, which yeah, apparently yeah, it's just dupe fucking with Deadpool after he falls asleep in a movie theater. Weird stuff happens in the vision he gives him, and then he wakes up and he's like, "It's like what? What did I ever do to you?" And it just you know gives a quick one panel montage of everything, and it's like, "Oh, fair enough." <laughs> okay, back over to DC, bouncing around. Uh, very quickly, Batman: Urban Legends number eight and nine. Uh, these two issues had a two-part Batwoman story from Alyssa Wong, Vasco Georgiev, Rain Barreto, and Becca Carey, which I mentioned mostly because I, it brings in Beth slash Alice as like, she's kind of doing better and she's living with Kate and helps Kate solve the problems that are presented in this issue, like gets some autonomy and to be productive and like, to kind of live in a healthier place, and I found that just super refreshing. Was it was Alice a, a comic creation, or did she appear in the show first? She was definitely comics first. She was. Um, I don't. I don't know if she was in the original Rucker Run because I haven't read it. But she was like arc one of the Williams and Blackman New Fifty Two run. I don't think I've read that one since it came out. Like I, it is I need gorgeous. To I do remember the art. The yeah. art is like that. I think that was my first James Williams uh, yeah. book that I read in terms of him on art. Um, which slight plug. Recently, uh, our upcoming episode for um my podcast, uh, Fables and Reflections, is Salmon Overture, which he is the artist on. Yes. So, uh, check that out. We have the first two parts of a three-part Asriel story, written by Dan Waters, with art by Nicholas's Messaja, colors by Ivan Placencia, and letters by Ariana Marr. Um, Asriel is dealing with people coming back from the dead and the religious implications of that. Fair enough. It, I don't know how much it fits into or leads directly into... Uh, the Arkham City book that's going on right now, Order of the World, but it's Dan Waters writing both, and Asriel's in both. So it makes me feel like there are some big Asriel things afoot. We had a two-part Outsiders story, which the Outsiders stuff was one of my favorite things in Future State. This is the second Outsiders story we've seen in Urban Legends. We had another two- or three-parter that connected the dots between Future State and this story, which is... This one actually splits time between the present and future state. Okay. Uh, it's written by Brandon Thomas with pencils by Sean Tormey, inks by Raul Fernandez, letters, or, sorry, colors by Alejandro Sanchez, and letters by Steve Wands. Um, Duke, who has a magic arm now for reasons that aren't really explained, 
sends the purely lightning Black Lightning backwards through time to beat this guy called the Fearful, who was exposed to two different strains of fear toxin and started emitting fear toxin himself that he could not control. Okay. And wound up, like, sending future Gotham just into complete chaos. It's really fun. Like I said, I'm going to go Brandon Thomas. I don't think he's ever written a bad comic. I'm loving what he's doing right now. I keep hoping that these Outsiders backups will eventually turn into, like, an Outsiders ongoing mm. from him. Because uh, he also introduces a new idea for the team in this book that I think would make an ongoing Outsiders book great. It has four permanent members, Black Lightning, Katana, Metamorpho, and Duke Thomas, the Signal, and a fifth seat that always rotates. Whoever comes to them with a problem joins the team, takes that seat, and then once that problem is solved, that person has to move on and they have to bring someone else in. Like a good premise, yeah. Yeah. So I I would very much be here for that. Uh in at one point in this book, the fifth member is another one of my favorite underrated DC characters, Frankenstein. I do I do love me some Frankenstein. I adore DC's Frankenstein. Uh there is a Professor Pig story. Professor Pig is inexplicably creepy to me in ways that make me deeply uncomfortable but it was very pretty and it was well written it was christian ward doing all of those things with letters by steve wands um it's basically like batman busting professor pig told against the actual like three little pigs big, big bad wolf story oh, there you go um it's framed with with thomas is reading the story to bruce and bruce is like if I were the wolf, I'd be better prepared. And then you see, like, a bat tank crash into this impenetrable fortress that Pig has built. Yeah. And then there's this story. There's this story that has absolutely no right to work. Which, again, makes it something I love because it works. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Oh, God. In Down the Rabbit Hole, parts one, or part one of three. This is written by Sam Johns. Art is by Carl Mostert. Colors by David Barron. And letters by Tom Napolitano. There is no way, no way that Tweedledee and Tweedledum should be able to hold their own three-part story. They've gotten out of the game, they've gotten clean. One of them is super, super sick, and the one who is maybe less apt to be a caretaker is the one who is still fine. Hmm. And it is about the two of them trying to navigate the American medical system. Go <laughs> Sure. Why not? <laughs> it shouldn't fucking work, but it works, and I... I was in shock. I finished this and I'm like, I want to read more of this. And I, how, how did you do that to me, Sam Johns? It's very good. It's very good. I really dig urban legends. It's like always rotating what it's doing. And it's always just so good. Yeah. It's, I'm, so with that, uh, uh, bullet point, the elevator pitch, however you, however you want to phrase it. Uh, I'm a big proponent of there's no bad ideas, only bad executions. There are a ton of ideas uh, on paper that should just not work, but then mm -hmm. they, you know, are classics. Like, And that's the thing. I feel like so many of my favorite things are the ideas that, like, the pitch on paper should not work. Mm -hmm. 
but then it does, and I always love the thing for that. Yeah. In its own right, too, but, like, for that. Those are my favorite things, usually. Ready to talk about Eternals, number seven? Let's. So... Written by Kieran Gillen, art by Asad Ribic, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters and design by Clayton Cowles. So, we've had a little bit off between issue six and seven. There's been a couple of kind of, uh, one-shots that have expanded what's going on in this run. Um which have all been great. But this is issue number seven, so this is the, the beginning of the next arc. The end of the last one, they find out that uh, what gives Eternals eternal life is that when they get brought back to life, a human life is taken to reanimate them. In that issue, in the most tragic way possible. Yeah, which, uh, did you want to tell how the, how the reveal happens? The young boy who, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Icarus. Thank you. Who Icarus, like, had found out was prophesied to die and has been protecting for the whole first arc. Drops dead to revive Icarus when Icarus is killed. Uh, yeah, so they all find out about it, um, through shenanigans. Because also, the last arc, uh, several Eternals, it seems, are going rogue at the same time and trying to sabotage, uh, the machine, a.k.a. Earth. Um, so they kind of get the machine repaired, uh, they turn the Eternal, uh, turn one of the Eternals back on their side, like, oh, you know, I screwed up, need to, you know, uh, but yeah, so now they're like, so this issue, they're dealing with that revelation of like, uh, you know, while we, you know, like, we're meant to protect humanity, we're meant to protect the earth, and, like, but when we die, that a, a human life is taken. Um, that's messed up. We should probably, you know, maybe not throw ourselves into so much danger so easily. So, um, but the kind of fucked up thing about the Eternals is that they go into, uh, they're about to go into a Unimind to kind of debate on what to do and to vote on a new leader. But some of them don't show up because those memories will be erased so that they'll continue to do their job properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've kind of sequestered themselves. And so in the meantime, because Druig knows that uh, the knows that the voting system is askew, and that Druig's got his whip count. <laughs> He's got his whip count, and he know you know, and he knows the moderates are going to stay home this election. Uh, brings it to where Thanos, who is technically an Eternal, will now be voted top dog in the Eternals. Because uh, Druig thinks that he can keep Thanos on a leash. Yeah, no, he does. Uh, because, so, Thanos is... It, <laughs> Druig is dumb. Yeah, Druig is very dumb. Be- so the reason he thinks that he can keep him on a leash is because there's a... The, the reason Thanos is back this time around is there's this... He was purposely brought back, so there's a programming to kill him again. And, but... Druig removed it from um, Festus. From Festus, who was the one that brought him back, and so Druig took that from his memory and like erased it. It's like you know, it's so he doesn't know that he knows how to take you down, so you're good. 
but you know secretly he kept the you know the keywords in Druig's head um, so that he could control Thanos. So Thanos gets voted, and Druig is all smug and everything, and Thanos immediately crushes his head. <laughs> and it's like, did you really think I was stupid enough to uh, to keep you around after this? Like, I know you know that that keyword. Like, yeah, uh, Druig has done a dumb thing. Yes, very dumb. Uh, so yeah, Thanos is now king of the Eternals, essentially, and our main cast is kind of off moping, especially especially Icarus. For yeah, for rightful reasons, but he's always been kind of a moper. <laughs> Off moping with the deviants. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, because uh, Angelina Jolie's character, uh, uh, Thena, uh, has been known to be a monster fucker and likes to hang around with the deviants. <laughs> so they're at her boyfriend's place. Can't believe I'm about to use this segue. Speaking of monster fuckers. My Date with Monsters, number one. There you go. Written by Paul Tobin, art by Andy McDonald, colors by DJ Chavis, and letters by Taylor Esposito. So, this is about a woman who has to grant her daughter's deepest dreams, like most strongly held dreams, in order to close basically the portal inside her daughter that lets nightmares come into Earth. And that dream is for her to find love again. Okay. So she has to go on dates. So monsters do not come with, into the night. With shitty dudes. And when she's not dating, she and the nightmare, who is her buddy, Croak, uh, have to go out and kill monsters to keep them in check. Fair enough. Turns out she and her first husband... Uh, who was also a scientist, developed this program, and the husband pushed to, like, weaponize dreams. Yeah. And that is what led to these nightmares running amok. There are a few people around the world who uh, summon these nightmares when they sleep, and there is an entire military branch now dedicated to granting these people's desires so they stop having nightmares. Wait, 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 is it... Are they called Dream Force? Not to my knowledge. That would be very good, though. Um, so there's literally a military base where people are brought in and trained to date this woman. This is the kind of weird stuff that is set up here, and it is so good. It is so good. It is so good. It's Well, it's one of those... So, like, my one of my favorite things about fiction is, like, you... I think the I think the core purpose of fiction is to allow us to process the world to to gain a distance from the world to then learn how to live in it. So uh, you know you have Spider Man teacher responsibility like not you know no one in reality is going to get spider powers and have to use them responsibly, but it teaches you know growing up and 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 uh, all that different stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess this would be like just like navigating. Uh, it sounds like you know a way to process like navigating dating or like moving on from a hard breakup, like yeah, uh, or even like how you're you know how to help your child without uh you know when after they're grown, like right, like it's it's kind of about trauma and loss, mm. and it is presented as a goofy action comedy. Yeah. And I am so here for it. The last book on the list, I believe, unless I have missed something, is Mamo. Uh, I read number four and number five this week to get caught up. 
This is the end of this run. Uh, the short pitch is this is a book about a young witch who has to come back to her hometown after her grandmother dies and, like, put things right and put back the bones of her grandmother that were not properly buried and have started causing problems in this town. Um, but here are the two things I will say at the end. One, but make that gay. <laughs> There's some gay smooching. Go read it. It's fun. There you go. Uh, and two, this feels like, I mean, one, as far as like tight miniseries go, easy recommendation. It's so well written. It's so much fun. It's everything in this book is done by Sass Millage. Um, but the other thing I would say is like, it has this like pastoral Studio Ghibli feel to it. Like it's out in nature. It has these magical creatures. I think if you're a fan of that kind of style, it is probably a must read yeah it is so good all right oh so and i could easily see another arc of this down the road it leaves the door open for more yeah well sounds like it'll be coming to trade soon so i think so it's got to be uh boom i think usually gets their trades out fairly quickly within a couple of months i think i would expect it yeah all right um i am going to forego is it still good and revisit all of those other books that we can talk about when the next issues come out later. This week's books! I did not ask you ahead of time if there's anything coming this week, anything coming up this week that you are looking forward to. Um, I've got a couple on the list already, though. Uh, well, I'd probably say Spider-Man, but, like, that's, I don't know, that could be a, a easy say every week, because that's... Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've got three new things here. If you wanna, if you wanna come up with some answers, and if not, no worries. We have Robin's number one of six. Uh, if you remember earlier in 2021, the Twitter and Instagram poll that DC did as like a round robin to pick a new miniseries uh, that would get greenlit. Robin's was the winner of that. It's about all the Robins coming together to talk about being Robins. When a new secret Robin who claims to be the first Robin comes to tell them why they all suck at the job. Yeah. Uh, written by Tim Seeley, art by Baltimore Rivas, and colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr. Wonder Woman Evolution, number one of eight, written by Stephanie Phillips, pencils by Mike Hawthorne, inks by Adriano De Benedetto, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Tom Napolitano. The pitch for this book is... Humanity is on trial, and Wonder Woman is our defense attorney. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what we did, but it is up to Wonder Woman to save us in Space Corps. And Stephanie Phillips has also been killing it lately, so very much here for it. The last book, which I'm just going to yell at everyone to read until they read it, so you might as well start now, is Radio Apocalypse number one. Written by Ram V, with art by Anand Radhakrishnan, and letters by Aditya Bidikar. Uh, this was solicited for earlier this year and got pushed back. It is about, like, the last radio station on Earth after some sort of, like, catastrophe that has, like, really centralized, like, I think the last pockets of humanity is, as I recall, the setup. Um, but this is the same team that did Blue and Green last year and Graffiti's Wall before that, which are just incredible books blue and green i think about like all the time still and it's been over a year since i read it um but with kind of the the I, i've read a couple of like 
quick Twitter reviews from people who got hands on it early. Like, that quality, that sort of punch, but with more of the optimism of uh, Ramvi's more recent uh, 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 Many Deaths of Lila Star. So, like, I mean, if Ramvi's name on, name's on it, I'm going to read it. This creative team is incredible. Like, has proven themselves together so many times already. Just go get it. Go get it. Go read it. There you go. Uh, I do have one. Um, yeah? That I can talk about. So, it's... Um, Batman versus Bigby. A Wolf in Gotham number three is coming out. <laughs> which is the integration... The integration... Uh, integration. There we go. I can speak. Uh, the integration of uh, the Fables continuity, which is picking up at the end of this uh, six-issue mini, is picking back up at issue 151. Uh, so Bill Willingham is writing this miniseries where, where again, Batman fights Big B. Wolf. <laughs> uh, which is like... When I heard Fables was coming back, like, I read that in high school, so, like, and then, uh, so not only was this, like, oh, yeah, Fables is coming back, plus, plus Big P fights Batman, and I was just, like, I, I, I just went so hard immediately <laughs> when I heard that. Uh, so if someone hasn't read Fables, is this something they could jump in with and then keep going with Fables when it picks back up? Um, I have not read uh, issue two yet. Um, I I have it over my to to read pile. I didn't get to, I wasn't able to get to it today. But uh, I think the first issue, I would say yes, because it's very that issue one is very Batman centered. Gotcha. Um, and like this strange guy, like these strange wolf attacks are happening, and then this strange guy like is following Batman, who is is Bigby. Uh, and at the end of issue one, Batman knocks Bigby out with a uh with a gas pellet, and then Bigby wakes up in the Bat Cave chained. Uh, <laughs> and so that I assume that's where issue two picks right back up. But yeah, I'm uh yeah, I'm I'm excited for for this mini series. Um I'm excited for Fables to come back up again. I'm going to be rereading Fables soon. Uh, I'm going to be picking up the compendium soon. I think it's 3. I think it's probably th- I think it's three compendiums. So like I say 150 issues. Um But yeah, that's Awesome. Thank you for joining us again this week. Thank you for having me again. Where can people find more of you? Uh, they can find me on the, uh, CPOV network. Um, uh, we, I am the co-host with J.D. Martin, uh, on Fables and Reflections, which is a Neil Gaiman-centered podcast. Um, like I said, our next episode that is coming out is Sandman Overture. Um, some other works we have done so, that have been released so far have been, uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane, um, Stardust, both the movie and the book, the, both the movie and the book, um, the and Coraline, both the movie and the book, uh, and the first volume of Sandman. I think that is, yeah, I think that's that's. I think that's everything's been released so far. That like I said, we just recently recorded Sandman Overture. Um, as I'm looking at my, uh, as I'm looking at my Morpheus statue next next <laughs> to my monitor. Um, yeah, so that can be found on uh, any 
pod wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, as well as at F and R Pod, both on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Let's see. You and JD are also on an upcoming episode of, and I am on a separate upcoming episode of Men of Steel to talk about Miracle Man. Yes, we are. I'm talking about the Alan Moore run, and you two are appropriately talking about what we've seen so far of the Neil Gaiman run. I remain hopeful that we see more of the Neil Gaiman run in the future. I, th- I think if they offer him enough money, they'll <laughs> he'll go back. Uh, I, well, I say that kind of snidingly, just because of like he he's talked about wanting to get back to just writing, but then he says that after doing a good Omen season one, and then immediately announces three shows <laughs> that he is involved in, which is yeah, Netflix said, man, Good Omen season two, and Anansi Boys. Yeah, which it's funny because he's kind of vocally said he does not like show running but at the same time i think he learned on american gods he kind of has to stay involved to be happy with what happens well american gods from my understanding of everything is he very much liked the original showrunners and he was Mm -hmm. a producer on it so he wasn't hands-off about it but god only knows exactly what happened to where you know they network intervention yeah to where like they left you know the showrunners left and then because the showrunners left two of the actors left yeah uh which i mean yeah definitely sucks but i was also recently on just to finish quickly knocking out the plugs an episode of fun and games with matt and jeff talking about metroid dread uh which I adored both being on the podcast and playing that game. Uh, And then a recent episode of The Real Movie Critic vs. The Cinegai, a third CPOV podcast. Uh, Fourth CPOV podcast. I'm losing losing count of how many CPOV podcasts we've mentioned. It is is a lot. (laughs) Um, When I I first told my friends that uh, our show got picked up, I was like, yeah, we're on a network. And, like, it's, there's, there's, and they said, oh, well, how many shows are on the network? I said, a lot. And then they went to, they went to cpov.com uh, and, uh, or certainpov.com. And which, uh, I was like, yeah, you weren't kidding. There's a lot. <laughs> uh, oh, um, I, well, I'm going to be on, I'm recording this uh, Tuesday. Uh, I'm going to be on the uh, Certain Point of Yule uh which is a special show that uh that network is doing for uh holiday movies um the one i'm covering is uh uh one december night starring um bruce sorry bruce campbell and um i can never remember his name he was in mr deeds and was in the oc played the dad in the OC. your guess is as good as mine anyway it's one of those faces at least for me it's like i know that guy but yeah. Anyway, uh, it's more importantly, Bruce Campbell's in a, is <laughs> is in a Christmas movie, a Hallmark Christmas. Movie. Certain point of Yule is fun, and I will forever be proud of coming up with the title for it. Oh, I'll, there, there you go. That's a fantastic fun, sir. Um, Frankie is my co-host on the currently on hiatus. Rob Thomas, no, not that one. Rob Cast, and is one of my favorite humans on earth. So I look forward to hearing that episode. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to recording it. Yeah. 
All right, uh, that is it. As always, we'd like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. If you have not taken the hint yet about the certain POV network, <laughs> by telling you more is not going to help. Uh, you can visit us at panelologypodcast.com as well as certainpov.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash merch. Capital P, capital M. Or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash mailbag. Capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I'm Angela Bones Bullock. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.